0: You know, there was an article a few months ago, I think it was now, in Atlantic Monthly on Facebook misery, and sort of this way that people sort of measure up kind of who they are by what they see all of their friends post and how that's skewed, because people don't really post the bad stuff that's going on in their life, only the good stuff, and there's sort of this skew, you can only say you like things, you can't really say that you're sorry or sympathize and those sorts of things, so it sort of skews things, but Today I was thinking about a different kind of Facebook misery, uh, which is reading comments about controversial, sometimes political, subjects. And I was thinking about this story that we're going to look at tonight, and thinking about how I think one of the the things that's been really interesting and sobering over the last five, six months is to see, now hear what I'm saying here regardless of what you think happened in Ferguson, Missouri, to see that there is more depth of feeling about this issue than I think a lot of people were aware. I don't know if you feel that. That's what I I feel. I I read different things that different people post, and I just think it's opened a lot of people's eyes to how far we still have to go with race relations in our country. I think that's fair to say. You know... Sometimes people think that Jesus is only really interested in issues like whether or not you pray, whether you share your faith with your friends, you know, do you read the Bible? And I think a story like the one we're going to look at tonight helps us to see that actually there are huge problems in our world, and Jesus cares a lot about them and has something to say about them. I was thinking about the problem of racism and I was thinking as well about the problem of the way we treat women. Now, of course, you know, most recently, you know, there's been the scandal, if you follow sports in the NFL and, you know, abuse and all this kind of stuff. But you might think, well, that's just their problem. But it's, it's not just their problem. Um, the issue of how women are treated in our society is still a deep, abiding problem. I ran across an interview with a lady named Anita Sarkeesian about... Gamergate, hashtag Gamergate in Rolling Stone just a couple days ago. Do you know about this situation? Evidently, this lady um, has posted a series of YouTube videos. Uh, her kind of series is, or her website is Feminist Frequency. But the, the, the videos are really about the portrayal of women in all kinds of video games. Now, it's fascinating. You might think, you know, but I mean, it's not just like, you know, sort of like, you know, um, you know, assassin and, you know, some of those, you know, need for speed and some of the, I mean, it's even like Mario Kart. You know, she goes through all of the ways that women are portrayed. She says this, that the roles most available to women in video games, from princesses to be rescued to prostitutes to be murdered, are both sexist and unimaginative in what should be a genre where creativity should be happening, at least. Hardly controversial stuff. I've, if you've ever played video games, I probably don't need to try to argue this, though so I do you know, recommend watching one of her videos. It's pretty sobering, and it's pretty interesting as a father to think about the messages that my kids get that I wasn't even thinking about being problematic. But you know what's fascinating is the way people have responded to her. If you just go on Twitter and look for the hashtag GamerGate and see the death threats and see you know, the people freaking out about her trying to say something about this area of our culture and what it means to be a woman in the midst of that. Um, she literally has been driven. This is what the Rolling Stone interview about, Interview was about. Like, this doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, it shouldn't be that upsetting to just point this out. But literally, the lady has been driven from her home by death threats. Uh, most recently, she had to cancel an appearance at a, um, a place out in Utah because they have a concealed carry law and so the police refused to search people for weapons and people had threatened to, to do mass murder, you know, kind of, kind of stuff if she showed up and spoke about women's portrayal in video games. And you read something like that and you're like, good night, I thought we had evolved in our view of women. I mean, we tend to think that we're better than the Victorians and other eras that we can point our fingers at, and certainly better than the people in the Bible's day. And then you read something like this, and you're like, good night, this is crazy. It seems that we haven't evolved as much as we'd like to think we have about really big issues, race relations, how we think of women. And I don't really think that the church has a stellar record about either one of these issues, honestly. You know, those of us who are Jesus' disciples, and I know not everybody here necessarily is, maybe some of you are here trying to figure out what Christianity is about, I just would say, from my experience, and as I look around, I think that the church has a long way to go in these two issues as well. But the problems just seem so insurmountable. Like, I read different articles, and I just don't even know where to begin. Well, tonight we're going to look at a weird story. You might think, okay, how is that an intro for this weird story? Well, here, here's the issue. It's a story that seems to show Jesus humiliating a poor woman who comes to him for help. It's the kind of disturbing story that a lot of people would rather not have in the Bible, would rather not talk about it. But I want us to not dismiss this story because, honestly, unlike what this story appears on the surface, actually, this story shows us how much Jesus cares about the big issues, racism and sexism. It's a story that on the surface offends, but as you dig deeper into it, you find that it's absolutely crucial to have a full picture of who the real Jesus is. And that's what we're after this semester. We're trying to figure out who is the real Jesus, not just the Sunday school Jesus, not just the Jesus of like little kids' story Bibles, you know, where he just sort of picks up little kids and pats them on the head. There's a lot more stuff in the Bible that helps us get a picture of who the real Jesus was. Again, I think so often Christians seem to think that Jesus only cares about, quote-unquote, spiritual things. And then you look at the world's problems and you think, how is it that our faith seems so disconnected to the issues that are really the huge issues in our world? And I think it starts with what we think Jesus cares about. What do you think Jesus cares about? A lot of us, again, think that it's just about, quote-unquote, spiritual things. But this disturbing story, I think, will help break up that assumption. So let's read the story. We've got it up there. to in Matthew chapter 15. And it goes like this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's a weird story, isn't it? Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this story. Lord, we thank you that those who put together the Bible did not leave this story out. We thank you, Lord, that those involved in preserving the Bible down to our day did not edit this out. But Lord, this is a weird story. We need your help to understand what is going on and what does this show, you, show us about who you are and what you care about. Pray now you'd send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a weird story, isn't it? (laughs) There's no denying that this is is a weird story. And, you know, the first thing that that might strike you, if you've read the Bible very much, or you've been around, you know, people talking about Jesus, if you've been here, when I talked about Jesus um, and the story of him meeting this woman at a well in Samaria from John's Gospel in chapter 4, you'll realize right away, this is not normally how Jesus treats women. That's one of the things that makes this a weird story. Even in the context of other stories of Jesus, this one is strange. It doesn't even fit the other stories about how Jesus interacts with women in Matthew's Gospel. This is Matthew 15. But before and after this, Jesus deals differently with women and with people from other races. Yet yeah, it doesn't seem like the kind of story you'd make up. <laughs> if you were making up a story about Jesus, do you think this would be one? Well, you might if you were a Jewish nationalist. You know? But it seems that, you know, by the time the Bible was being put together, late 1st century, early 2nd century, uh, That wasn't the attitude of the church. We know from the writings of other church fathers. So this doesn't seem like the kind of story that would have been made up. There doesn't seem to be any purpose to it. It's a weird story. It must have actually happened. (laughs) And not only that, it's in two different Gospels. It's not just like Matthew had an axe to grind. He was kind of a closet misogynist and remembered this one story, and he was the only one that kind of remembered it, and so he just kind of stuck it in his Gospel notes, and Mark's Gospel as well. So what do we do with this story and other weird stories in the Bible? Because I I tell you, there are a lot of weird stories in the Bible. I also will tell you, though, I think one of the things that distresses me at times um, working at this campus is the way for a lot of students taking religion classes the first time they discover that there's weird stuff in the Bible, and then I'm not always sure that they know what to do with that. If you're sort of experiencing some of that existential crisis, let's get coffee and talk about it. You know, we're not the first ones to notice that this is a weird story. Okay? For 2,000 years, Christians have been thinking and writing what they thought about this story. Okay? And it's worth at least looking into that a little bit before we dismiss it. Here's my contention tonight. If you want to know who the real Jesus is, then it is imperative that we don't dismiss these kinds of stories, the kinds of stories that make us a little uncomfortable, maybe a lot uncomfortable. Instead, we need to dig in deeper and ask, what's going on here? Matthew and Mark both thought that this was an important story for us to understand who Jesus is and what he was all about. So what are we going to do with this story? Well, the first key, I think, to understanding what's going on here is to consider what's the setting. What's the setting? It says that Jesus went away and he comes to this region. It's not a Jewish region. It's a Gentile region. A Canaanite woman from that region comes out and is crying to him. He doesn't answer her, and then the disciples come. So it's obvious that Jesus is not just having a private conversation with this woman. Now that's important, because Jesus is speaking to her at the same time he's instructing his disciples. Anybody ever been in a hospital? I won't get you to raise your hand, because I guess that's too personal. I'm not allowed to ask you that in this day and age. But if you've ever been in a hospital, like a teaching hospital, or if you've ever watched... Any of those hospital shows like Scrubs? Anybody remember that? Oh, we used to love that show. Or um, what's the one, Grey's Anatomy? You know, at a teaching hospital, there's something that goes on every morning and often later in the day too called rounds, where the doctor goes around to all the patients with the medical students and will ask them questions. Sometimes it's almost awkward because the patient is laying there and they're asking questions about things like the patient isn't even really there, depending on the bedside manner of the doctor, and whether he's more caring for the patient or teaching the student. Sometimes both are going on at the same time, and it makes for interesting conversations, the kind of conversation you wouldn't really have with just the patient or with just the medical students. And I think you, you need to understand about this story is that's what's going on here. Now, I mentioned that story in John chapter 4. Jesus you know, speaking to this woman, the Samaritan woman at a well, and in that story, Jesus stays behind at this well while the disciples go into town to find some food. And when they come back, they discover Jesus talking to a woman, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman, not a Jewish woman. And the Jews did not have great love for people who were not Jewish, particularly Samaritans. There were very, a lot of hatred between these two groups of people. And if you remember a little bit about that story, the disciples are kind of freaking out that Jesus is talking to her, but they don't have the guts to ask Jesus about it. They kind of whisper among themselves, like, are they doing? Rabbis don't talk to strange women. They certainly don't talk to strange women with a reputation like this woman, and they don't talk to Samaritans at all. What's he doing when talking to a Samaritan woman? You just don't do that. But they don't have the courage to bring it up to Jesus. Here, again, Jesus is dealing with disciples who are scandalized by what this woman is doing. What do they want to do? They want to get rid of her. They want to get rid of her. Jesus, send her away. She's crying out after us. And Jesus, Jesus is remarkably wise in how he handles this situation. He's instructing both the woman and the disciples at the same time. I would argue that he's loving both of them. He's loving both of them. He's loving the woman and his disciples in a world where racism and sexism abounds. That's what this story is about. Let's dig into it. How does Jesus show his love towards his disciples in this story? Here's here's the way I think it, it comes out. He draws them out to expose their racism and their sexism. And then he shows them how big his kingdom agenda really is. Look at how he does this. Now again, you have to understand that it's a really big deal and culturally scandalous for this woman to speak to Jesus and certainly for him to speak back to her. Okay? Everybody there would have been scandalized by Jesus speaking to a woman who's not a member of his family in public. You don't do that. I, I, I think about even our own neighbors, Middle Eastern neighbors, and you can tell if I make a mistake and look them in the eye, particularly the older woman, who's from, you know, I have Iraqi neighbors, maybe I've told you before. If I, I, You don't look her in the eye like that. You just don't do that. And I don't even really talk, whenever you even try to talk to her, now she does not understand a lot of English, but to talk to her is bordering on inappropriate. It's just not done in certain cultures. And that's what Jesus' culture was like. So no rabbi would have addressed a strange woman in public, and the disciples know this and are committed to this. And what does Jesus do? Well, this woman comes up and speaks to him. Now, at first, he doesn't answer her. And maybe that bothered you. She comes up and says, Please, my daughter is possessed by a demon. Help us. And he doesn't answer her. The disciples think they understand why he doesn't answer her. They must think Jesus is hoping that if he ignores her, she'll go away. After all, In their view, it's not proper for her to be speaking to him. It's certainly not proper for him to speak to her. I see what Jesus is doing. If he doesn't talk to her, maybe she'll just go away. But that doesn't work. She doesn't go away. And the disciples get annoyed by her cries, don't they? Now, what they actually say to Jesus is ambiguous. If you want to put a good spin on it, what they're saying is, Jesus, just heal her daughter so she'll leave. If you want to put a bad spin on it, what they're asking Jesus to do is send her away. Just tell her to get out of here. In other words, Jesus, she's not taking the hint, dude. Like, you're going to have to say something. You're going to have to tell her to go. She's making a scene. She's crying out. Everybody hears it. It's not right. It's not proper. You see what Jesus has done? In not answering her at first, He's allowed the disciples to speak what's on their heart. And it's ugly. It's ugly. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about her daughter. They don't want her bothering Jesus. They don't want her sullying his reputation. Though as far as I read in the Gospels, I've never found a place where Jesus seems worried about guilt by association, but religious people often are very worried about guilt by association. If you talk to her, if you hang out with her, it's not good. It doesn't reflect well on you, Jesus. Just send her away. They don't want Gentiles or women hanging out with Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus now has an opportunity to draw them out so they can basically hang themselves with their own words. And then, what's really extraordinary in this story, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He lets the woman do it. Well, We're going to see that in a minute. He pushes it even farther, though, with his, reverse, his response in verse 24. So, not only are they concerned that she's a woman, they also are concerned that she's a Canaanite woman. She's not Jewish. And when Jesus responds in verse 24, they think he's on their side. Look at verse 24. Jesus says... I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that's a pretty shocking thing. Especially, you know, we read Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, that was our call to worship. Remember it said, It's too small a thing to make my Messiah a light only for Israel. I will also make Him a light for the Gentiles. This is in Isaiah written a long time before Jesus came. And Jesus knows the book of Isaiah. Jesus knows there are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four sections in Isaiah where the servant who is to come is spoken of. In Isaiah 49, it specifically says that the servant is going to come not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. Jesus knows this. As a matter of fact, I could show you places where he even models what he does in line with the servant songs. It's very much his consciousness and understanding of what the Messiah, the servant, will be doing and will be about. And yet here, he says something which seems to contradict that. What's going on? Well, Jesus is reflecting what the disciples and the Israelites of his day thought. That the Messiah was to come because Israel needed to be set free from the Romans. Remember, the Romans occupied Jerusalem the entire time of Jesus' ministry. Even among his own disciples, there was one or two zealots People who felt that they should take up arms against the Romans to get rid of them. And they thought that when the Messiah came, He would be the right arm of God, the wrath of God personified to deal with the Romans. And here Jesus says, the Messiah has come for the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, woman, you're not an Israelite. I've not come for you. And the disciples are like, "All right." He's done it. He's said it. He's with us. He's saying what the disciples are thinking, even though it's not Jesus' real understanding of his mission. Now, it's interesting, in Mark's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, the wording is a little different. In Mark's Gospel, it says, Jesus says, I must first go to the lost sheep of Israel. I don't know if you've ever come across some of these stories where it's a little different in one you know gospel than another. And I think there's a lot there could be lots of reasons for that. Here's what I think is going on here. I think Matthew preserves more closely the words that Jesus actually said. But I think Mark portrays what he meant. Actually, you know, in different Bible translations they do this. Some translations try to translate one-for-one correspondence from Greek. To English or from Hebrew to English, and others try to translate idioms into the sense. In other words, in Hebrew, for example, if you want to say that there's a deep pit, do you know how you say it? You say pit pit. But I don't, none of you have Bibles that say that Joseph was thrown into a pit pit by his brothers. Right? No. And none of you have Bibles that say that God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. That's what it says in the Hebrew. But we don't use that idiom. We say face-to-face. Okay? So you're familiar with this phenomenon, and I don't think that it's a threat to your faith to say that sometimes you need to translate for sense, translate an idiom. Jesus says, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel only. But He's saying that fully understanding that He comes for the lost sheep of Israel first, But not only. Because he knows Isaiah 49. And Mark understands that. That Jesus was not saying categorically, I've not come for anybody. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's Gospel, before and after this, he's ministered to Gentiles, not just Jews. But what he says, and what the the Jewish disciples hear is, he's with us. He thinks that the Messiah is only for us. Awesome. But what does the lady say? What does she say? Well, she says one of the most amazing things in all of Scripture. See, Jesus is, Jesus is loving the disciples too much to let them live in their racism and their sexism. But i got to tell you, this racism issue was a hard, hard issue for the church. You're gonna, you read even in the book of Acts, how difficult it was for God to finally get these Jewish disciples to believe that God cared about Gentiles. He had to give a vision to Peter of this sheet coming down and tell him three times, Peter, get up, kill, eat. In other words, there's no distinction now between clean animals and unclean animals, that those Jewish ceremonial laws that separated Jews and Gentiles, no. That's gone, done away with by what happened at the cross. And yet still, in the letter of the Galatians that we studied last spring, we find that Peter shrunk back from that. Even though God had revealed in a dream to him, very specifically, that God cared about the Gentiles and wanted them to be part of his kingdom, still, when some of the Jews show up, Peter shrinks back and refuses to eat with Gentiles again. You understand, this was not an easy issue for the early Christians to deal with. Right? but Jesus is committed to dealing with it. He's committed to dealing with it. In letting this Gentile woman rebuke the disciples before him, he's showing his commitment to defy the racial and sexist prejudices of his day that make the world so ugly. In other words, he's drawing his disciples into a trap. Have you ever been around people like I've, Sometimes I always feel like that around English people, particularly professors. Like, I always feel like a babbling idiot. If you've ever been, like, to Europe or, you know, most foreign countries, you realize that Americans talk a lot, especially when they're nervous. And I always have that experience around English professors. I can't tell you how many times I've met some Bible professor that I've revered, and I just start blabbing, and they're just sitting there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, more you do, the more you do that, you just keep blabbing. That's what these disciples are doing. The more Jesus just sits there and doesn't say something, they start opening their mouth. And as Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, it's out of the issues of the heart that the mouth speaks. And what the mouth reveals is ugly. So what Jesus does here enables him to love these disciples enough to draw them into a trap, to be rebuked by this woman, by what she says, and at the same time draw her to a deeper and truer healing. And let's look at that how does Jesus love the woman in this story? You might think, well, he doesn't. He just uses her as a pawn. That's not true at all. See, it's important to realize that while this woman's suffering because of her daughter is real and severe, and Jesus deals with it, right? He heals her daughter. But she has a spiritual problem as well. She's not in relationship with the God who made her. And Jesus is not content merely to heal her daughter even though that's what she comes asking for, Jesus loves her too much to not draw her to a deeper and more profound and more beautiful healing as well. And the way He does this with her, the same time He's drawing the disciples out to expose their ugly sin, the same time He's drawing her out to come to a fuller expression of faith, he tests her and draws her out. She has a deeper need than her ailing daughter. Now, what's interesting, Middle Eastern cultures prize wit. This woman excels at wit. I don't know how many of you all do Twitter. I love Twitter. You know why? Because I think wit has, has been uh, found a place to reassert itself in our culture. 140 characters to say something witty. Now, I know some people just use it for advertising. You know, I don't like that. I like the people that have sort of witty sayings and then witty responses. I love that. She's very witty, right? Superbly witty in her response. Rather than bow up and get defensive. She could have gotten very defensive at what he says in verse 24. But what does she do? She says it's not right to take the children's bread. Sorry, he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs, referring to the Israelites as the children and referring to her as a dog. There's no getting around it. He calls her a dog. But how does she respond? Look at verse 20. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't get defensive. She basically says, Lord, I am a dog, but bless me anyway. Now you might think, that's kind of a crazy thing. Is Jesus want everybody to grovel? And I want you to see the bigger context of what's going on in this story. He's actually enabling her, respecting her enough to come sort of battle with her in a sense, with this witticism. It's actually a very ennobling, respectful thing to do to her, to treat her as an equal who can go toe-to-toe with him with these witty sayings. That must have been freaking the disciples out. They're like, send her away, get rid of her. Not only does he not do that, but he actually draws her out to be able to go toe-to-toe with him and she bests him. She does. She gets the final word and he says, that's awesome. That's awesome. Do you see that? And imagine what that was like in this culture for this Jewish rabbi to let the woman get the last witty barb and him say, that's it, that's awesome. I've not seen that kind of faith. You see what she's doing? He loves her enough to draw her out. You have a deeper need he says to her, then just your daughter. But you don't realize it, but I'm going to say what you really need is the bread. You need the bread, and she says, I don't deserve the bread. But give me some of it anyway. Even the crumbs are enough. That's amazing. This is such a beautiful picture of true faith. True faith says, Jesus, I don't have any claim on you. I haven't done anything that makes me deserve your grace, but bless me anyway, because I have a profound belief in your goodness. Where does that come from? I think it starts with him talking to her. At first, he doesn't talk to her, but when he speaks to her, it awakens in her hope that this rabbi is not like the others. He speaks to me, and that gives her courage to come back at him. And he draws her in. He responds to her and gives her an opportunity to respond back, back and forth, back and forth. And it finally draws her to this profound expression of faith. I'm a dog, but bless me anyway. In these words, we see not only her humility, but her boldness born out of her belief that Jesus is both powerful and merciful. You know, there's an old uh, story preachers like to tell. I think it's a good story to illustrate this. a story about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. And there's a story that one time one of his generals came and asked him for a special gift of just an incredible amount of money for his daughter's wedding. You know, Alexander, my daughter, wants to get married. Oh, wonderful. How can I help? I want X amount of dollars. Outrageous. And Alexander says, great, wonderful, here you go. And the guy leaves. And then some of his other counselors come to him and they're like, what in the world? Like, I thought when that guy asked for that, you would have been like, off with his head. And and supposedly Alexander said, you guys don't understand. When he asked me for that outrageous amount of money, he honored me because he showed that he believed I was incredibly wealthy and amazingly generous. She shows that she believes that Jesus is powerful and merciful. I don't deserve this, but I know who you are. Bless me anyway. Do you have faith like that? Is that what faith means to you? Or is faith Jesus? I've crafted a pretty amazing resume. Just look at all the cool stuff I've done. Look at all the things I've not done so you better bless me. See the difference? (laughs) Yes, I am a dog. I have nothing, no claim on you, but bless me anyway. That's true faith. Martin Luther said, faith is a living, daring hope in God. That's what we see here. And interestingly, Matthew and Mark both put this story right after Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees for their trust in their own obedience to the traditions Deliberately saying, this is true faith. Not the faith of trusting in your resume and all of your religious stuff that you've done. True faith is saying, Jesus, none of that stuff counts, but bless me anyway. This is what the Apostle Paul does. Look at Philippians 3 sometimes. "I I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As far as obedience to the law, perfect. But when I came to understand the Gospel... I saw all that as dung and refuse. That's faith. I'll conclude with this. If you dismiss this weird story, you miss three really huge things. First, you miss the fact that Jesus loves this woman enough to draw her beyond her very real need for her daughter's healing. Jesus loves her, but you have to dig deeper into the story to see that. You also will miss the way that Jesus loves his disciples enough to confront the sins of racism and sexism and use their own words to trap them. Most importantly, if you dismiss this story, you end up with a skewed view of who Jesus is. You end up with a Jesus who doesn't speak about women or about racial issues. You end up with a Jesus who just cares about patting little kids on the head kissing babies, teaching us about prayer and evangelism. But the real Jesus defied these kinds of taboos to speak about his goal to bring healing to this world of the big stuff, the stuff that seems insurmountable, like racism, sexism. The real Jesus is committed to deal with the deepest problems that we have in the world Sometimes the way he does it is a little confusing at first, (laughs) not the least because he uses disciples who are still clueless and still full of sin to bring his kingdom into this world. All we can say is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you that you care about the big things, enough to speak into them, enough to confront them, It's not the only place where he does it. But I think this weird story is profound in seeing the way Jesus goes after issues that nobody wanted him to speak about in his day and age. Let's pray together.